Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 196. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. something a little different this week. I'm desperately ill, so we're doing a best of Joe six-pack, and then I'm going to take the next three weeks after that off to try to get better. I'm sorry for leaving you hanging in the lurch like this, but that's the way it just has to be this time. Let's listen to the best of Joe six-pack. A big part of this episode deals with my congratulations to the Supreme Court. I'll explain later why I'm offering them my congratulations, but first I want to talk about something President Trump said earlier this month that will lead right into my congratulations. President Trump made what was perhaps the truest statement he's ever made when he said conservatives and Republicans are too nice. That applies to Catholic lay people of every stripe across the theological spectrum as well. We're just too damn nice, and that's got to change. Are you struggling to lose weight no matter how much you diet and exercise? Turns out it's not your fault. A 2022 study published in Nature Medicine of 52,000 women and men found just one factor in every overweight man and woman, low brown epidose tissue levels. They also found in skinny people high brown epidose tissue levels. Brown epidose tissue, also known as brown fat, isn't fat at all. It's not a fat store, but a fat shrinker. Its brown color comes from its densely packed mitochondria, which works 24-7 to burn calories from your fat stores and the foods you eat into pure natural energy. Even though the brown fat makes up a fraction of your weight, it can burn up to 300 times more calories than any other cell in your body. 
That's the reason they created Exapure. Exapure is unlike anything you've ever tried or experienced in your life. It's the only product in the world with a proprietary blend of eight exotic nutrients and plants designed to target low brown fat levels, the newly found root cause of your unexplained weight gain. Every tiny increase in brown fat means a huge jump in calorie and fat burning and energy levels. Want to lose weight and keep it off? Go to the show notes for this episode and click on the Exapure link to find out more. Conservatives are too nice. We play by the rules and expect things to turn out right because we view the world that way. But the left doesn't play by the rules and that's why they win more often than not. For Catholics, being nice not only works to our detriment politically, pro-life efforts for example, but it also works to our detriment in the Catholic Church in America and around the world. For whatever reason, Catholics think they have to be nicer than Jesus. But the word nice isn't even in the Bible. There was nothing nice about Jesus by today's standards of what we call nice. In Luke 12, 51-53, Jesus said, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In other words, Jesus is plainly stating that truth will be divisive to the degree that it can destroy our most personal relationships. Since he's the very embodiment of truth and said so in John 14:6, and since he commands us throughout the Gospels to be willing to die to promote and defend truth, we're dead wrong to be nice, or at least nicer than Jesus. You might say, but Joe, Jesus said we have to love everyone. That's absolutely correct. But where in Scripture does it say that love equates to being nice? Jesus certainly loved everyone, as he demonstrated all throughout the Gospels, but there wasn't anything nice about him either. Jesus publicly called men liars, hypocrites, and white-painted sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He drove people from the temple with a whip. What part of any of that is nice? These examples of Jesus not being nice causes some people to be in conflict because they see a contradiction between the things Jesus taught and the things he did. But there's really no contradiction at all. Let me ask you, what's the very most important thing anyone possesses? Well, it's their soul, of course. When you see close friends or family members doing things or about to do things that are potentially self-destructive, what do you do? You say things they don't want to hear, things that hurt or anger them. Why? Because you love them, so you tell them the truth in an attempt to try to save them, whether they like it or not. That's genuine love. If you react that way when it's close friends and family members, why won't you do it for everyone? Jesus commanded us to love everyone. Either we believe him or we don't. Either we obey him or we won't. The same hurtful truths we tell friends or family who are messing up has to be applied equally to everyone we meet, or we're being disobedient to Christ at best, hypocritical at worst. If we look at the commandments of Jesus where he tells us to love everyone, we have to look at all of what we're to love in toto. Certainly, we have to love Christ's mystical body, which is the church. In fact, we have to love it so much that when greaseball politician bishops or disloyal lavender mafia priests betray the lay faithful, we have to stand up to them, both privately and publicly, and demand the orthodoxy that is our right, no matter the cost to us individually or collectively. Defending truth, that is, defending Jesus, is that important. Defending Jesus and his teachings against Marxist bishops and Judas-type priests is our duty and obligation, but it comes with a price. It's a good price because Jesus said, He who does not pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Our failure to defend truth will cost us our immortal souls. 
That's not me saying it, but rather Jesus. And before I continue with the other things that we're obligated to love, I want to make a couple of comments all of you need to hear. Last week, a listener sent me an email thanking me for telling it like it is. One thing she said was that I speak my mind. I got to thinking about that and decided I've been remiss in telling you something you need to take to heart. And I thank that listener for making me think about this. When I'm expressing my opinion, speaking my mind, I'll always let you know it's just that, my opinion. If I don't tell you something is my opinion, then it's absolute Catholic orthodoxy, or it's derived from the constant 2,000-year teaching of the Catholic Church. I'm so convinced of any truth I tell you on this show or any of my written work that if you think I'm wrong, I'll happily debate you on this show anytime on any topic I've covered. And that debate invitation includes bishops and priests. But I realize that's a waste of time because any of them who disagree with me are too cowardly to debate me. That's how convinced I am that anything I teach is the truth. If I tell you it's raining beer, you better grab your mug and run outside. Back to the things we're obligated to love. One of the things Jesus obligates us to love people through is the virtue of patriotism. Patriotism really does encompass loving everyone in the truest sense, at least everyone in our country. Patriotism, by its very nature, insists that we love our country. America isn't just a place. It isn't just a geographical area defined by borders. America, above all else, is the people who rightfully and legally claim citizenship. So if you love your country, if you're patriotic, you love the American people. Being a patriot doesn't mean you have to love your government, but that you love the people. I hate our nation's government with every fiber of my being, but if you've listened to this show for any length of time, then you know I love the United States of America. Things weren't good in America back in the 70s when I served in the military. Compared to today, though, America had no problems at all back then. Today, the Marxists and extreme socialists are trying to take over this country through Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and the demonic Democratic Party. If they succeed, enslavement becomes our destiny. If you're a patriot, and all Catholics are required to be patriots, then we can't let that happen. Last week in my Catholic News Notes segment, I included an article from LifeSite News titled, When Should a People Overthrow Its Government? After the author listed a long but partial list of tyrannical policies a new Biden administration would inflict on us, he wrote this, quote, In short, there is a point at which citizens are justified in rejecting duly appointed leaders. The Declaration of Independence unequivocally states that there is such a point. To wit, when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government. After which comes the qualifier. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. However, when a long train of abuses and usurpations events a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Two sentences later, the Declaration reiterates the right to alter government when its leaders are usurping the rights of the people and attempting to establish absolute tyranny, end quote. Then the author asks the obvious question about whether or not we've reached that stage of absolute tyranny. He answers his own question by saying that we haven't yet. I agree that as long as Trump is president, we don't have absolute tyranny. However, we already know from the left's statements and actions that we'll lose freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and our right to bear arms. They're also going to expand the culture of death in that they're now advocating that a certain percentage of people under the age of two and over the age of 80 need to be eliminated. Incidentally, you'll notice that the lamestream media aren't talking about this because the American people will never accept it. 
This is only my opinion, but I think that we'll be in a de facto state of absolute tyranny if Joe Biden becomes president. Therefore, in my opinion, upon Biden's inauguration, we not only can, but should revolt. Jefferson said, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. He was merely echoing what he said in the Declaration of Independence. If Biden wins his illegitimate presidency, which alone is enough to justify rebellion, this isn't the time for being nice. Just as our forefathers did in 1776, we have to be prepared to defend our own lives, liberties, and pursuit of happiness, all of which are given to us by God himself and not the government. You may ask, Joe, are you talking about the possibility of war? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The reason I'm congratulating the United States Supreme Court is because last Friday they gave every American patriot a reason to begin a second civil war when seven of the justices rejected the Texas suit against the four battleground states of Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Rush Limbaugh, who I've never known to be wrong about our society or culture, said he believes the conservative states are tending towards secession. Right this moment, 71% of Americans believe a new civil war is inevitable. I'm one of those Americans. It's time to fight. But Joe, I don't believe in violence, you might say. For starters, fighting to preserve liberty isn't violence. It's not called violence, but rather force. It's force when you shoot an unjust aggressor who's trying to hurt you or your family, not violence. And to say you don't believe in violence, when you actually mean the use of force, is to imply two things. The first thing that it implies is an adherence to pacifism. Pacifism is a heresy that's been rejected by the church from the very first century, so trying to wiggle out a conflict on the basis of pacifism puts you squarely outside the church. Any Catholic adhering to pacifism must either reconcile himself to the church or simply stop calling himself Catholic. The second thing implied is cowardice. As a veteran, I can attest firsthand to the fact that freedom isn't free. Well, few freedoms we have left are there because 1% of the American people have been willing to sacrifice everything for the other 99% so you could have those freedoms. Comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. How many times have you heard me say that? If you prize your comfort more than your convictions, you've selfishly told everyone else that you really have no convictions at all for anything greater than yourself. Conviction for anything, by necessity, carries with it self-sacrifice, even the possibility of the sacrifice of life. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have to sacrifice your life, but it does mean that there will definitely be other great personal sacrifices for any conviction you hold. Claiming to hold conviction sounds good, but you have to be willing to put your money where your mouth is. I have a great deal of concern for the future of this country. If the current state of affairs had been present even 50 years ago, people would be in the streets demanding change in the heads of their elected officials. But Americans' response to the pandemic lockdowns with puppy dog compliance tells me they might not any longer be willing to fight for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've had it too good in America for far too long. We've allowed demonic Democrats to drive God from our society, and doing that created a vacuum that's been filled with a worship of self. That's made us a nation of wimps who cower down and avoid living our lives under the guise of saving our lives. I've got news for you. Life not lived isn't life at all. If you're hunkering down and not living your life, you may as well call the funeral home and tell them to come pick you up. My fellow veterans will understand what I'm about to say. When I swore the oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic, nobody ever told me that oath had an expiration date. Like most veterans, I still feel obligated to fulfill that oath. My honorable discharge from the Army wasn't a discharge of my responsibilities. It's way past time to get back to living, because now it's time to be prepared to fight for our God-given liberties. Bad Catholic Joe Biden 
and that Marxist woman who will act as vice president are going to work with their fellow satanic Democrat child murderers to advance the depopulation of America with even more officially sanctioned legal murder. Strip us of our God-given freedom to worship? Abolish our God-given right to defend ourselves? Rob us of our God-given right to assemble and speak our minds? And sell out America to communist China? You're also going to see gas prices skyrocket to $10 a gallon or more, and you're going to be told how much water and electricity you can use. Tyranny is going to be a hallmark of life in these United States from now on. They began getting us used to it with the foolish and wholly unnecessary pandemic lockdowns. Effective January 20th, they're going to force their control over our lives, and the America you've known all your life will be gone forever. Nothing more than a happy memory. The question is this, are you going to be as spineless as the jellyfish we call our nation's bishops, or are you going to revive the spirit of our forefathers, the spirit of 1776? Are you going to hunker down like a sniveling coward, or are you going to stand up and fight for yourselves and your posterity? Are you going to defend your liberties, or are you going to idly sit back and let these very evil people enslave you? Frankly, I'd rather die. So you have a choice and decision to make. Are you going to be true to your convictions and principles, or are you going to be a coward? Well, I guess we'll find out soon enough. The China virus lockdown suspended masks across the country. When restrictions were lifted, few Catholics returned to mass. Why? Because no matter how you slice it, American Catholics simply don't know our faith. In two different EWTN surveys of Catholics conducted in November of 2019 and February of 2020 respectively, 86% said that their religion is very important to them. Yet 82% reject at least one Catholic doctrine, 41% never go to confession, 61% don't attend Mass regularly, 70% don't believe in the real presence, 84% believe abortion should be illegal, and 55% agree with euthanasia. Clearly, American Catholics are completely or almost completely ignorant of the Catholic faith. If they weren't, these figures wouldn't be so dismal. Despite their lack of knowledge, it's nearly impossible to interest them in catechesis they need so desperately. Well, I've got a remedy for that. Introducing the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts, which are endorsed by Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke. Everyone reads the Sunday bulletin, and these bulletin inserts provide a thumbnail catechism lesson that is anything but typically boring catechism. They not only tell readers what the church believes, but why the church believes it. In the parishes where these bulletin inserts are already being used, parishioners love them. I know because I get emails every week telling me so. If you're a parish priest, you can get three months of what we believe, why we believe it to try it out for free. Some laity get subscriptions for their parishes as well. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Insert. It just requires 11 minutes of your time to see the video. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Six Pack Warriors, here we are with Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas again uh, for another episode of The Sacred Heart Wins. How are you today, Excellency? Good, Joe. It's great to celebrate this feast of the triumph of the cross. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's jump right in because I know your time is limited. Suzette and Jeff ask, I assume they're, they're a married couple. Uh, they ask, what is the definition of a heretic? 
Are there any lists of issues which, if you dispute them, automatically categorize you as a heretic? Well, um, the definition of a heretic, I, the best I can offer, is someone who truly rejects the teaching of the church and uh, espouses something that is contrary to the teaching of the church. As far as when the actual label of heretic um, is rightfully um, placed on a person, um, I think that would need to be looked at in, in each individual case. Um, looking at the gravity of what's being um, denied or proposed contrary to the church's teaching and the, uh, the cumulative uh, significance of it. Maybe, you know, a heretic could have a lot of, you know, sort of lesser issues that they just are denying that really comes to a, a threshold where they would be considered heretical. Sometimes uh, it can be simply one major issue um you know and really the the question of of being heretical um i guess i would really encourage people not so much to worry about who needs to be labeled as heretical um but more where is the truth being denied and to to speak up in support of that truth and i mean really that's exhausting for us in our culture today <laughs> joe because the truth is being denied on so many different levels. Um, but we have to trust in the truth and to really remember, um, it reminds me that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against evil forces, that we need to remember that and not so much worry about labeling people, but just recognizing the evil that is being done by sharing false messages and denying the truth, the deposit of faith that we've received in our beautiful Catholic faith. Very good. I Now, let me uh, clarify here. There are really actually two different types of heretics, correct? There's the material heretic and the formal heretic. And correct. the material heretic can be anyone who disagrees with anything uh, from the church, but a formal heretic, that's a canonical declaration, uh, from the church's judicial system. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That, and all of that's expressed in the catechism. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, Ed asks why does this is, <laughs> this is related to a question last week. Ed asked, why do so many bishops push homosexuality? Well, Joe, if I had the answer to that, I, I wouldn't just be Bishop of Tyler, but uh, <laughs> um, I think it's it really uh, a lack of understanding uh, the real truth that the church teaches um, to not just homosexuality, but um, any, and, you know, we always make the distinction that the being uh, homosexual is, is not sinful. It's acting on that inclination. Amen. Ways. And that's the case for, for so many aspects of our humanity. We all have preferences. We all have ways that we look at life. And wherever we find ourselves, we're called to live virtuously. So I think that the that's what we as bishops need to teach and to remember that we are here to guide people in the virtues of the gospel and any action, whether it's uh, homosexual activity or um, taking the life of another person or embezzling funds, any action that is contrary to that teaching needs to be clearly called out um, for whatever reasons. Uh, well, I think for part of it is some don't believe that it is wrong. And that is, that's a very serious departure from what the church teaches. Because really, Joe, if we, if we did as a faith say, okay, yeah. Um, and basically it comes down to um, same-sex marriage. If we just say, okay, yes, that's okay. Then 
where is the morality? Where is anything that isn't okay? Um, and I think that's what we have to realize. And so I think that it's it comes down to um, bishops and priests and laity not really believing um, in what God has revealed to us. He created us male and female. He created men and women, males and females, one man and woman to enter into the the covenant of marriage, to be open to children. That's all in the word of God. It's in the catechism. If we don't really believe that, then we got a problem. And I think that's what it's rooted in is a really a lack of belief in what God has revealed to us. Amen. You know, to reinforce something that you said a little earlier in this, I've been teaching the catechism evangelistically for over 30 years. And one thing I always tell my students, being a homosexual is not sinful. If it were, being a heterosexual would by necessity be sinful. Absolutely. It's the abuse of sexuality. It's uh, you are only immoral if you're a homosexual who is acting out, practicing that yeah. uh, perversion. Uh, just like if you're a heterosexual and you're having sex outside the bonds of matrimony, you're right. just as perverted because you're you're perverting what God set forth. Absolutely. And I think we need to constantly remind everyone of that. It Basically, we're talking about the sins of lust, and those are rampant in our culture. Many people deny that they are sins, but... If we acknowledge there is sin and that lust is on the list of deadly sins, the manifestation of that. And, you know, for the person who is heterosexual and falls into grave sins of lust, they need to repent and go to confession and return to God's truth, just like the homosexual person giving in to sins of lust and what their preference and inclination is. All of that has been lost in this age of poor catechesis, and many people just don't think things through uh, clearly enough to recognize it's not about attacking anyone with a certain preference. It's addressing the sinful behaviors, and many of them do flow from uh, lust. Not all, but a lot are rooted in some way in the sins of lust that the world has to struggle with or should struggle with. Thank you, Excellency. This next question is from Cheryl. Actually, she's got she's got a pretty doggone good concern here. While talking with my parents today, they mentioned that they may not be able to make it back from their trip Sunday in time for Mass, but that it was fine because their church has a Monday evening Mass that their bishop in Michigan approved for the Sunday obligation. I am really confused as to how this could ever be approved by a bishop. Well, um, it does raise a lot of questions. Uh, the bishop does have in very specific circumstances um, the ability to, to do something like that, but you'd have to really look at the circumstances and see what, what that's rooted in. Um, certainly, um, the you know, the obligation, I mean, we have to go back to why do we have an obligation on Sunday? Because it's the Lord's Day. And so, and and the bishop can transfer that obligation. I mean, like a, an obligation for a certain holy day or feast day. I mean, the bishop does have some authority there. Um, but as always, along with authority comes great responsibility. And certainly I don't know enough in that circumstance to... Uh, to understand why the bishop would do that. Um, and I would encourage the people asking the question to, you know, to, to just respectfully reach out. And there, there may be a good explanation, but there, there are several layers of things that would need some explanation to understand why this was judged to be uh, something that needed to be offered. Yeah, this is one of those deals where you got to know a lot more detail, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Excellency Damien asks, oh, I like this. Uh, why has there been no public investigation of the sodomite activities at the NAC 
in Rome. This is especially significant since Monsignor Jeffrey Burrow was on staff there for a number of years in charge of formation. His bishop, uh, William Callahan, is also a member of the Board of Trustees. Ladies such as I are no longer going to support this type of sodomite rabbit hole wherever it exists. I'm not sure that's a question, but I think he wants you to comment on that. Yeah, well, it, it really goes back to an earlier question. Um, why is there not clarity on this? I mean, I don't know what's happening at the North American College, but uh, there does need to be more clarity and more evidence that anything that is contrary to the teaching of the church is being addressed properly. Um, I have men that are studying there, and I've... Um, said very clearly to them to let me know if they see anything that is problematic to them. And I, I trust these young men, they're virtuous. I mean, we're all sinners, but I trust the young men that we have studying there, um, that they are um, watching in, and seeking to live moral lives according to the teachings of the church. Um, so, they have uh, assured me that they haven't personally experienced anything that, um, I mean, I'd pull them in a minute from <laughs> North American if, if they said, Bishop, something um, inappropriate is happening or I'm in an atmosphere where I, don't, um, I can't flourish and, and seek formation and virtue and to, be, to become a priest. Um, I trust that these men, they're, they're good men, they are uh, truly committed to the teaching of the church. And so I've asked them, and, and so far they haven't indicated. They said, you know, there's lots of talk, but it's, it's like with any large organization, it's hard to get to the bottom of it. And I think I would urge um, that the North American College may be more forthcoming with that. From what I understand, they did do some sort of an investigation, but you know, you don't tend to hear a lot about that. And I think the more transparent we can be without condemning anyone, but calling everyone to virtue, um, calling everyone to turn from sin. And and that is too muddled in the church today. It, it truly is. Excellency, that causes me to ask a follow-up question. If your young men there were to tell you that something is uh, th th bad things are going on. You've already indicated you'd pull them, but what else would you do? What would be the extent of your action regarding that? Well, I'd have to contact the authorities that are overseeing that seminary and tell them, I mean, for one thing, if it reached that point, why I'm withdrawing my men and that this needs to be addressed. Um, because, I mean, that really is how we have to operate here in the diocese. I mean, and thankfully we have some good priests and we have a good solid ethics and integrity program that if, if any issue, thankfully we haven't had anything that rises to that level, the, uh, at least the allegations at the North American, but we need to address it, whatever's brought to us. And thankfully it, it's certainly not just me, but I, I support it, but we've got good people in place and I could name lower level issues, but issues that have been addressed and properly handled and investigated and documented what the what the issue was and how it was handled to, you know, to promote virtue and to help us all move away from the darkness of sin in our world. I mean, that's what we're here for. And uh, so the same thing needs to happen there at the North American and Maybe more has happened that I'm aware of. I don't, you know, I don't claim to know everything that's gone on or the investigation. But I think for the sake of the faithful, especially in this time, I mean, there's so much information available. So much is out there. We need to be as transparent as possible and tell people, yes, this was investigated. This is what was found. And this is how it was corrected. Um, but again, uh, Joe, we have to honestly go back to the question, do we really believe that this kind of activity, whatever it is, if it's contrary to the catechism, if it's contrary to the deposit of faith, it's wrong. And 
um, I'm not sure that we're all on the same page with what is truth and what isn't. And when we're in that kind of muddled area, it, it really creates a difficult atmosphere for dealing with, you know, the, the sinfulness and brokenness that has been part of the Vatican, part of the church, part of the world since since Christ was on earth. I mean, it's just our reality. That's great, Excellency. Uh, Six-Pack Warriors, that ends this segment of The Sacred Heart Wins, and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye, Excellency. Thanks, Joe. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. A general of the king's army wanted to rule the whole land himself, so he rose up against the king with a large number of soldiers. The battle lasted a long time, but the rebel general was finally routed and fled with his family into another country. The general was very unhappy in exile, trying to live with the shame he'd brought on himself and his family. Dressed like the beggar he'd become, he went back to the palace and entered the hall where the king held audience. He walked to the royal throne, holding the king's own two-year-old child in his arms. The rebel general approached the throne, knelt before the king, and said, Your Majesty, I'm the general who fought against you and wanted to take your life. I, as well as my wife and children, deserve to be put to death for my crime. But for the sake of this little boy, whom your majesty loves, I beg you to spare my family and me. There was silence in the hall. Everybody wanted to hear what the king would say. The king stood, and with a stern look began to speak. Yes, you and your whole family deserve to be put to death because you have been a traitor. But because you asked me to spare your life for the sake of my little son, I can't refuse your request. I love my son and can't refuse him anything. For his sake, then, I not only pardon you and your wife and children, but I shall also bring you all back to my palace to live with me in even greater honor than you had before. This is what happens for us every time we go to Holy Mass. We're like the traitorous general who offends God with our sins, but because we offer the Son to the Father at Mass and beg for mercy for the Son's sake, the Heavenly Father can't refuse our request because it is Jesus himself who pleads our case. Knowing this truth, any person who is grateful to the Father is certain to want to show God the proper signs of respect he demands through his holy church. There are many abuses that have crept into the laity's participation of the Mass, but thanks be to God, they are minor compared to other abuses we've discussed. And some things where the laity are connected to the Mass are merely misconceptions. Still, we owe God all the proprieties as our sign of respect and to help us to remember the great mystical event taking place when we attend Holy Mass. Let's begin by clearing up one misconception. I hear Catholics say all the time that they went to church to celebrate Mass. Frankly, it's not possible for us to celebrate Mass. Only the priest celebrates Holy Mass. We lay people participate in that celebration, but we can't actually do the celebration. That is for the priest alone. Another misconception has to do with when we enter the church. Firstly, bowing is not the proper posture for entering the church. We're to genuflect unless we have a physical limitation that prohibits us from genuflecting. Then it's appropriate to bow. And we are not, contrary to what seems to be popular belief, genuflecting to the altar. The only time our focus is on the altar is when Jesus is on it. 
When we enter the church and genuflect, we're genuflecting to the king of kings in the tabernacle. It has always amazed me to see people genuflect on Good Friday when Jesus isn't even present. Some say they do it out of habit and know better. That's understandable, but most actually don't know better. I once attended Mass at a cathedral where the bishop had moved the tabernacle off to the side, displacing it from its most proper place, the high altar. When people came in, they still genuflected to the altar instead of the tabernacle. This made it obvious they don't know what they're genuflecting. Why do we genuflect at all? We genuflect to show His Majesty our respect, love, reverence, and to acknowledge Him as our Lord and Creator. After all, it's a little hard to believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist and not pay homage to Him. In the missalettes that are so common in parishes today, as well as in missals and the pre-sacramentary, there are what are called rubrics. These rubrics are instructions on what must be done and at the proper moment during Mass. They're complete in the pre-sacramentary because they come from an ecclesiastical document referred to as the germ, general instruction of the Roman Missal. They're reasonably complete for the laity in most missiles and missalettes, but downright incomplete in some of them. These rubrics are there for a reason, so we can give God the worship Holy Mother Church insists we give Him. St. Teresa of Lisieux, also known as the Little Flower, said that she'd die for even one rubric of the Mass. This popular saint said this to show us the importance of those rubrics. When readers go to the pulpit to read, I often hear them ad-lib introductions to the readings. That's wrong and shouldn't be done. They should read only what's there. The people often read along with the reader, which is perfectly all right. What's not all right, though, is reading the gospel when the priest or deacon is reading it to the people. Why? because at this point we're hearing Jesus proclaim his good news through those who have received holy orders acting for him. Instead of reading along, we should have our attention focused on the priest or deacon. When we recite the creed, there is only one thing required I hardly see anyone do anymore. The Nicene Creed says, For the sake of us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was made flesh by the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary, and became man. During this sentence, we're required to bow, except at Christmas when we kneel. The reason we do this is, we're paying homage to the fact of the Incarnation, that is, when God became man. There are two things people frequently do during the Our Father that shouldn't be done holding hands or holding their hands out with their palms upward. There is absolutely nothing in the rubrics that authorizes these practices and their abuses that crept into the Mass during the rebellious 70s. Besides, the gesture of palms upward is a priestly gesture, not a lay gesture, symbolizing the prayers of all the people going through the priest to heaven. Finally, there's the sign of peace. You see, Jesus is already on the altar at that point, so our focus is on him, not one another. The proper way to perform the sign of peace is to turn to the person on each side of you, gently grasp the other person's hands, and say, Peace be with you. We're not supposed to turn around to the people behind us, wave to the people across the church, or leave the pew to go to others. When we turn around to someone else or leave the pew, we're turning our back on Jesus. And we are most certainly not to kiss or hug someone because that's most inappropriate in any public venue. The focus of the Mass is Jesus, not other people. Hey, Simon Rafe here, Chief of Staff at Church Militant. Come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com, and get an honest view of all things going on inside and outside the church. We're the fastest growing Catholic media apostolate in the world, and we have one mission, and that is serving Catholics like you. We have daily discussion, commentary, and news to keep you informed. So what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilton.com today. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. 
So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Paul of the Cross. He said, celebrate the feast of Christmas every day, even every moment in the interior temple of your spirit, remaining like a baby in the bosom of the Heavenly Father, where you will be reborn each moment in the divine word, Jesus Christ. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. In the middle of the 19th century, the people of the Caucasus Mountains in South Russia were ruled by a very just sultan named Shlemil. He wanted to stop all the corruption and bribery among his people, so he made a law that whoever was convicted of bribery should be punished with 50 lashes of the whip in the public square. Much to the sultan's shock and sadness, the first one caught in bribery was his mother. For three days he struggled with himself about what to do. On the fourth day he appeared before the people and had his mother brought before them. He gave orders to two men to begin the whipping. Just as the first blow was about to fall, he suddenly pushed his mother aside and untied her. Then he ordered the two men to bind his hands and remove his shirt, telling the punishers to administer the fifty lashes to him. They did so, but most unwillingly. After the fifty lashes had been administered and the sultan's back was a bloody pulp, with a deathly pale face he turned to his people and said, Now you may go to your homes. The law has been satisfied. The blood of your sultan has flowed to make up for this crime. And from that day, bribery was never heard of again because the people never forgot their just ruler, Shlemil. Never forget what our redemption cost Jesus, who himself accepted the falling blows of God's just anger and took our punishment in our stead. He could say to his heavenly Father, Accept these sinners as your children again, because the blood of your own Son has flowed on Calvary to make up for their sins. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.